That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place. In the first, there were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was a second room called the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the ark's cover, the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these things in detail now. When these things were all in place, the priest regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place, and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. This is an illustration pointing to the present time, for the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciousness of, consciences of the people who bring them, for that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again, like the high priest here on earth, who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have to have had to die again and again, ever since the world began. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, 
but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. Thank you, Sandy. That was a, a lot of verses to read, but that's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I love the book of Hebrews. It's a great book. You know, uh, many of you are, are newer to our church. You've come in this year or in the last few years, so you may not, have know, may not know that um, I attended a Christian university. That's where I met Catherine. And while I was there, I got a scholarship to be on the intercollegiate debate team. And we debated against all your Division I schools, and it was always wonderful to hand those Ivy League people their keisters on a platter from time to time. So uh, I enjoyed that. And uh, I ended up living on the same floor, the dormitory, with several of the other guys who were on the debate team. So it was inevitable that we would end up in each other's rooms and we late at night and we would stay up until early hours of the morning doing what guys do at college except we are our formal debaters right and so uh, we would debate different topics of religion and theology and philosophy and history and politics and law because that all of our majors were in some way or another touching on those things and and girls of course that was also one of those things that we we debated we would we would always start uh you know when we when we got serious somebody would say, resolved. And we all knew, okay, shut up, listen, resolved. And then they would put forward a statement, you know, that was going to be the topic of conversation, like resolved. In a real fight, Chuck Norris would destroy Bruce Lee, okay? And then you're off to the races. Or resolved, U2's Joshua Tree was the greatest album of all time, okay? That was a topic in the 80s when I was in school, right? Uh, resolve. Well, one night, I never will forget, a topic came up, and it became quite a heated topic, and it was a topic that we came back to numerous times. I don't remember the exact wording of it, but essentially what it was was something along these lines. Resolved, Jesus' death on the cross could have been for nothing. It was possible that Jesus could have died in vain and that no one would ever have believed in him. What a great topic. Think about that for a minute. And, and now you know why we kept coming back. I mean, we were up to like, I think that night, you know, well into like three, four o'clock in the morning, going back and forth at it. And we came back to it again. Maybe, let me put it maybe a different way to you this morning. Why did Christ, or what did Christ actually achieve on the cross? Did he actually save certain men? Did he actually, literally, remove God's wrath from anyone? Or did he simply establish a plan of salvation that theoretically made people savable? You see, you see the impact of that statement for a moment? When Jesus died on the cross, did he actually accomplish something real? Did he simply make us theoretically savable or did he save us? That's the question. Now, I got to tell you, the way I answered that question back then, 35 years or so ago, is not how I would answer it today. In fact, I reject how I answered that question 35 years ago. Instead, this morning, what I want to bring to you is this idea that I believe is in the Scriptures, that on the cross, Jesus accomplished everything. This clicker is not working, guys. Uh, that on the cross, Jesus accomplished everything he intended to accomplish. That is, the perfect and complete atonement 
for the sins of God's chosen people. Atonement. We're in this series, wonderful words this summer. We've had inspiration, the inspiration of scriptures, right? There's a place in the universe that we can go for absolute truth. The Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. Salvation, heaven. Last week, if you didn't hear Brian's message on the church, you need to listen to it or watch it. Phenomenal message on the church. This morning, atonement. A word that is prolific throughout the Old Testament. But interestingly, it doesn't appear very much in the New Testament, only a couple of times. And honestly, that's the choice of the translators. That's not actually the word being used, even here in that Hebrews chapter 9. In the New Testament, it's not that the, that the word isn't important, that the concept isn't important. It's just that the New Testament writers chose synonyms, words and phrases that maybe shine light on that formal word, atonement. Words like, or phrases like the forgiveness of our sins. That's all through the New Testament, right? That's atonement. Words like redemption or expiation or propitiation. One of Paul's favorite words was reconciliation. So the importance of this word, atonement, I mean, it appears from Genesis chapter 3 through every book of the Bible all the way to the end in the book of Revelation. So I had a lot of choices for text to choose, but I landed here in Hebrews chapter 9. As a reminder, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of ethnic Jews who, were, uh, who had, had, had professed faith in Jesus Christ. They had professed their allegiance to the new covenant, but for some reason, they had been tempted to turn their back, to apostatize, and to return to the old covenant, to Moses, to the law of Moses, and to the sacrificial system and the dietary and other regulations. And so in this chapter, in this section of Hebrews, the author, probably one of Paul's compatriots, has, has been arguing that Jesus is superior to Moses, that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant, that Jesus is our high priest, and as our high priest, he's superior to all the other high priests, and that not only is he our, our high priest, he is also our atoning sacrifice. That he, in, on the cross, what he's doing here is he's arguing that Jesus on the cross is superior, is, that he is the, the perfect, the final atoning sacrifice that could actually stand in our place and with his blood cover every one of our sins. That's a good place for us to start. Let's start right there, recognizing that without a bloody sacrifice, next slide please, there is no atonement. Without a bloody sacrifice, there is no atonement. Verse 11 says, so Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. These two verses are pivotal in this chapter. Preceding them in chapter 9, the author begins by pointing us back 
to the realities of the old covenant. And by doing so, what he does, he gives us a graphical reminder of the necessity, the need that we have for Jesus's atoning sacrifice. He does this by taking us to the temple and to the tabernacle and and talking about the design of it and what took place. And, And what I really want you to get out of all of that was the the description of the Day of Atonement and the architecture of the tabernacle, the the curtain that divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And that's significant because that image of a curtain separating God and His presence from the people is significant. This is what sin does to us, right? The scriptures tell us that all of us have sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. We are born sinners as enemies of Jesus Christ and of our heavenly Father, separated from him, needing to be restored in our relationship with him, unable to do that in and of ourselves. We need atonement. And so in the old covenant, Once a year, the priest would go through this this, uh, ceremony where he would take a sacrifice. He would then take the blood of the sacrifice after he had been purified. He would go behind the curtain and he would then uh, apply that blood to the Ark of the Covenant that Indiana Jones would later discover during World War II, okay? All of that would take place on an annual basis. Now, Now, that's an important thing here because the Day of Atonement You know, really, really, rather than minimizing the separation between God and the Israelites, the Day of Atonement actually magnified it. It emphasized that separation that was in place. Take us to the picture of a solitary confinement, if you would. Uh, We've all seen something like this. We understand what solitary confinement is, right? You've seen a movie, maybe a documentary. Someone is put into prison. They are put into a little box for maybe all of their life. They had no contact with other people. They received their meals through a a slot. 30 minutes a day, they are allowed outside because, you know, maybe a couple of decades ago, it was decreed to be tortured and not give somebody a break from a box. And so they go outside for about 30 minutes, maybe an hour a day, and then they have to go back into that cell. And what's interesting is that if you've ever listened to documentaries of of people, of inmates who are in solitary confinement, when they talk about that break that they get, that one hour or that 30 minutes, they say in one sense, it's the, they live for it. For the, the preceding 23 and a half hours, all they can think about is getting back into the daylight and getting a sense of freedom. But then when they get there, the sense of dread begins to build because they know the clock is ticking and in 15 minutes, they have to go back to the box. Now imagine if one day out of the year, if your solitary confinement was actually 364 days of the year, and then you got one day of a sense of freedom. This is what happens with the Day of Atonement. The Israelites, 364 days a year, they're separated from God. There's this sense his presence is there, but we cannot have that kind of relationship because of our sin. And then there's one day where you can celebrate, but even as that day is going on, you begin to anticipate, oh boy, now we start the cycle all over again. One day in a year, it's removed. We have this great need. And the temple and the architecture of the temple illustrates this need 
atonement for our sins that only God can remedy. Now, now let me make sure that we are um, you know, level set on what this word atonement means. The Hebrew word for atonement, it's basically a simple definition. And the definition means to cover, to cover over something. Um, uh, excuse me, J.I. <clears throat> J. Packer has a definition of atonement that applies here. He says, atonement means making amends, blotting out the offense, and giving satisfaction for wrong done, thus reconciling to oneself the alienated other and restoring the disrupted relationship. When we atone for something, we, we cover over our offense to someone. And we do this by making amends. By repaying, for example, making reparations, or doing something that satisfies the offended person. For the atonement of our sins, the only way that atonement could satisfy God was for it to include the bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And our passage points this out. Verse 12, with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, securing our redemption forever. Under the old system, those animals, that purified our consciences. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our conscience from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And in verse 22, he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. For our sins to be atoned for, God required the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Why? I mean, let's face it, skeptics of Christianity unbelievers, adherents to other religions, they come to this point, this central truth of the gospel, and they say, this is barbaric. Why on earth would a loving God ever sacrifice his beloved son? Why would he require him to go through the torture of the cross, to have himself go through that kind of indignity and ultimately butchered in such a horrific way? At the core of Christianity is a barbaric concept. Makes no sense to me. Many, an agnostic, will come to this idea and say, how can you ever worship a God like this? I mean, why didn't God, he's all powerful, right? God can do anything. I mean, Augustine argued that, you know, God didn't, God could have atoned for our sins another way. He just chose to do it this way because it best demonstrates his grace. But he didn't have to send Jesus. He could have, God is all powerful. With a, with a snap of his finger, a wave of his hand, he could have forgiven every sin of every person who ever lived. He's that powerful, right? He, he could have done any number. Why, why not put a system of works in place? That way people earn their forgiveness. Why resort to this? That's, that's a great question. It's an important question. And I would suggest to you that God could not just wave his hands and let it go that it was absolutely necessary that Jesus take our place on the cross and shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven. Why? It goes back to our affirmation from earlier in the service, right? In Ephesians chapter one, when God made his sovereign choice 
to save certain sinners, this put upon him a requirement to secure that salvation in a way that would not contradict his character. The way of salvation had to be such that it did not dishonor the character of God. So who God is, his character, his righteousness, his holiness, his perfection, his justice, his wrath towards sin. His character is such that it would not allow a simple wave of the hand and dismissal of our sins. He, his holiness and justice demand satisfaction. And only God, taking on human flesh, walking among us, living the life that we are to live, and then shedding his own blood could satisfy the perfect holiness, justice, righteousness, and wrath of God towards our sins. It had to be this way. The atonement was not one of many options that God could have chosen. It was the option. Because atonement means that our sins are now covered over. They are blotted out. The offense they create has been addressed. And the one who has been offended, in this case, God, is now satisfied. But for God's holiness and justice and perfect righteousness to be satisfied, Jesus had to become a bloody sacrifice for us. Without his bloody sacrifice, we would have no atonement. Okay? Secondly, Secondly, on the cross, Jesus perfectly and completely atoned for the sins of God's chosen people. Verse 15 says, that is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. And then if you look at verse 26, the second half of verse 26, it says, Now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. Jesus did much more on the cross than make humanity theoretically savable. He did much more than establish a theoretical plan of salvation that may or may not have worked. That it was all dependent upon humanity. He did something much more than that. Theologically, when we say that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice, we are saying that Jesus' death on the cross literally, actually accomplished something. On the cross... Jesus paid the debt of all of our sins. He satisfied God's wrath towards every one of our sins. He reconciled us to God so that we can call him Father and no longer be separated from us. He obtained for us every spiritual blessing that is obtainable through our heavenly Father. He actually did something. One way to maybe get your head around this and to understand what it was that he did with the atonement and how significant it is, is to remember three words that start with the letter S, okay? Three words, here they are, right? Substitutionary, no, not this slide, not yet. Substitutionary, right? 
first word. Second word, successful. Third word, specific. Substitutionary, successful, and specific. Let's look at that for a moment. Christ's atoning death was substitutionary. Or if you like older words from writings, it was vicarious. It was vicarious. We believe in a substitutionary, a vicarious atonement. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God made him who knew no what? Sin. To become sin for us so that we might become the holiness of God. On the cross, Jesus stood in our place. He received the wrath of God that each and every one of us deserves for our sins. He lived that life that God required, perfect, holy life. And on the cross, he took that life and he took upon himself our life, our death, and in exchange gave us his life, his righteousness, so that we could become sons and daughters of God. He received that punishment and wrath in our place. Christ's atoning death is a substitutionary atonement. It's also a successful atonement. Or again, an older word, it's efficacious. Efficacious, right? Or effective. When Christ died on the cross, when he died for us, he purchased everything we needed for salvation, including faith and regenerating grace. When we say that his death satisfied the wrath of God for, towards our sins, that all of our sin debts have been paid, we're talking about every one of our sins in our past, in our present, and in our future. Every single one of our sins as God's children was paid for, covered over, and redeemed when he died on the cross at that moment in time. Every single one of them. He obtained our redemption. And as these verses have showed us, he put away sin forever. When you read these verses, if you go back through and you look at all of the absolute definitive phrases, you can't walk away with any picture other than Jesus was 100% successful in his atoning work. What it brought to us in these passages. I mean, if you just go back to verse 12, right? And an eternal inheritance for us. He sets us free from the penalty of sins that we committed. In verse 26, he removed sin by his own death as a sacrifice. He accomplished something on the cross. It was real. It was successful. Third word, Christ's atoning death was specific. Specific. Again, going back to past centuries, we would say Christ's death was limited in his atonement. The question is this, did Christ die to atone for the sins of every human being who's ever lived, or did he die to atone for the sins of the elect only, God's chosen people that we talked about in Ephesians 1 a few moments ago? That really is the crux of the issue. That's the core issue here. When it comes to the atonement, we really only have three options to answer this question. Okay, now put up that slide, please. Here's your three options. The first option is what we would call the Roman Catholic view. That Christ died for some of the sins of all men. Roman Catholicism teaches that unbelievers, of course, as we would agree, 
they, they spend eternity separated from God in hell, and they eternally pay for those sins. The punishment of God is an eternal punishment. But Catholicism teaches that those who believe in Christ, while Christ died for the eternal punishment of their sins, he did not die for the temporal punishment of your sins. Uh-oh. Okay. Elect, non-elect. No, I'm teasing. Okay. <laughs> God's sign. <laughs> mm. <laughs> We were getting pretty heavy there. We probably needed a break, didn't we? That's good. That's good. All right, now where was I? Okay. Um, so Catholicism teaches that you will temp- have to go through purgatory or here, even here on life, and then in purgatory, you will experience the wrath of God, the punishment of God. You have to pay for the temporal penalties of your sin. Catholicism teaches Christ died for some of the sins of all people, right? The, the second option is Christ died for all of the sins of all men. Okay, Christ died for all of the sins of all men. So there are Christians, and they're known as universalists, right? A universalist comes to the atonement, and they say, you're exactly right, Jerry. When Jesus was on the cross, he actually accomplished something. He purchased and he obtained forgiveness for all of our sins. And that includes every person who's ever lived. So that ultimately, every person who's ever lived will enjoy the new heaven and the new earth and heaven with our Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. No one will ever spend eternity in hell apart from Satan and those demonic creatures. Because he did atone for every sin. And it would be unjust of God for someone to to be in hell and be able to turn around and say, but God... Jesus paid for all of my sins, including the sin of unbelief. He atoned for all of my sins and even unbelief. It's unjust for you to punish me a second time because these sins have already been punished. I mean, we recognize that principle in our own legal system, right? What's it called? Anybody know? Double jeopardy, right, double jeopardy. That was probably by somebody who watches Jeopardy got that answer. So the universalist believes that Christ died for all the sins of all men. 35 years ago, I believe Christ died for all the sins of all men. But I was not a universalist. See, I was raised in a, in a system of belief that is known as Arminianism. And Arminianism teaches that Christ died for all the sins of all men. But what, they really, what it really means is that Christ suffered for our sins, Right? And by his suffering, when we come and we add our faith to this, then that suffering and that work that Jesus did on the cross is now credited to us, okay? So 35 years ago, because that was my position as an Arminian, and by the way, when I use titles like that and labels like that, understand uh, these are, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We all believe in Jesus. We're all gonna be around a throne. We're all gonna get to heaven and we're all gonna find out we were wrong about something, okay? (laughs) All right, so this isn't a, a stone throwing and we should never throw stones and rocks at Christians who may not disagree with us on every matter of doctrine or theology. As long as we believe those fundamentals of the faith, we should, we should work together, love one another, fellowship and all that. I just wanna put that caveat in there. Uh, we are not in this church angry Calvinist, okay? We don't, we don't tolerate angry Calvinism in this church. 
Okay, we, we, we believe that the Lord loves all of us. And all of, we all need to be humble enough to know that we're all wrong about something. We're gonna be in for some rude surprises in heaven, okay? Can we agree to that? Amen, yeah, all right. So, but saying that, I still believe I was wrong 35 years ago. I was wrong. Uh, and, and I don't believe that anymore. Instead, I believe that Christ died for all of the sins of some people. This is what is known as the reformed view of the atonement, or what is known as a, a limited atonement. You know, you know a, few, a few months back, if you remember, back in Genesis, when we came to the covenant, you remember we were applying the covenant to the infant baptism and the sacrament of baptism, and we said, for example, that uh, I said in that message, and some of you le- le- like looked at me, gave me the stink eye for just a second, right? I said in that message, Every Christian, regardless of what church they're in, believes in infant baptism. Every Christian does. It's just a question of, is it going to be a wet baptism or a dry baptism, right? Every Christian believes that our children are supposed to have a place within the body of Christ. And so some churches do a baby dedication. Good luck finding that in the Bible, but still they do a baby dedication. Other churches, they actually assign, they put a covenant sign upon the children, which is baptism. But either way, we all believe in infant baptism, wet or dry. Well, may I suggest in the same way, every Christian believes in a limited atonement. Every Christian believes in a limited atonement. You either believe in an unlimited scope and a limited success rate, or you believe in a limited scope and an unlimited success rate. But either way, you believe in a limited atonement. Do you understand what I mean by that? Okay. You either believe that Jesus, his atonement, is for every human being who ever lived, right? That when he died, he was dying for every single being, person who ever lived. It's unlimited in its scope and its audience. But you have to recognize that only a very small subset of that large number actually believe. Therefore, it's limited in its effectiveness and its success rate. You either believe that or you believe that it is limited in its scope. That when Jesus died, yes, his death is precious. It is sufficient for every sin of every person who ever lived on this planet or will live on this planet. It's sufficient for everyone, but it is efficient only for those who God has called before the foundation of the world, his chosen people. So you either believe in a limited scope with an unlimited success rate. Every one of that limited number is going to find themselves in heaven around the throne of God. 100% success for the people that he died for or that he died for everybody with a pretty poor success rate. But one way or another, you are going to limit the atonement. Personally, I believe that Christ died for all the sins of God's chosen people, a people that he predestined and chose for salvation before the foundations of this world as we confessed this morning. By the way, that'll be one of our words that we'll get to in a few weeks, so just be patient. We're gonna deal with predestination and election later. But for now, let me just say why I believe it. I believe it, first of all, because it is inconceivable to me that Jesus would fail 
in his mission. He is the perfect God who took took on human flesh. And Jesus himself says, I have come to perfectly fulfill the will of my Father. I have come as the good shepherd to lay down my life for the, oh, that was pretty poor. Lay down my life for the sheep. The elect side got it. The unelect side, y'all were silent. (laughs) Come on. Let's try that one more time. I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he goes, I have sheep outside of this pasture. I'm laying down my life for them because they will all be part of one flock. And then he says this, everyone that the Father has given to me will come to me and I will raise them up on the last day and I will not lose one. No one will snatch them out of my hands. That is perfect success, 100% success rate. That's why I believe this. Jesus could not. Can you imagine? Jesus ascends to heaven and he sits down on the throne and he Guys, that was hard. (laughs) That was tough. I sure hope that wasn't a waste of time. Sure hope somebody actually believes this. It's up to them now. It's out of my hands. Can't do anything about it. Does that sound like the creator of the universe? Of course not. There's no way I could ever believe that. Even though I did 35 years ago. Kingdom of Senses on that one. I also believe it simply because of the scriptures. There's so many scriptures. Some that we have right here in Hebrews. Verse 27. Just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. So also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to hopefully, possibly, maybe, if all the stars align right, take away some sin of some people. Is that what it says? No. It says as a sacrifice to take away the sins. That means every sin of many people. You have Limited scope, unlimited success rate right there. Take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly awaiting for him. You know, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, and Hebrews 10 really makes this clear, if you had a sacrifice, if you brought a sacrifice to the temple, the priest took it, he you know, takes the blood, does this thing. If you had a sacrifice... You had atonement, right? I mean, it was, it was doom, boom, A equals B. If you did not have a sacrifice, you did not have what? Atonement, okay? That's what we have here. The same is true in the new covenant. If you have a sacrifice, your sins have been atoned for. This is an objective fact before the bar of God. It is faith in Jesus Christ that makes that objective fact in the heavenly realms before God himself. It is faith in Christ that we exercise when we trust in him. That faith in Christ makes the objective fact come into our subjective reality. Trusting in Christ makes what is real in the heavenlies real in the physical. That's what happened. You see, when Christ died for us, 
as his people, our state of warfare, peace was made between us and God. This is now an objective fact. Before God, for all of eternity, we're now at peace with him. We're his. He's chosen us. He's redeemed us. All of our sins are now forgiven. It happened at the cross. Peace now exists, and we're his sons and daughters. When we believe the peace that is true in the heavenlies begins to take root in our hearts, and we begin to sense that peace that we now have. We begin to experience that restored relationship and the record, and it takes a lifetime for it to play out, and it never does it perfectly until we finally receive that new heaven and new earth and new body. But that's what faith does. It makes the objective a subjective experience. Listen, there's all kinds of other scriptures we could turn to. We don't have time, we're out of time, right? I would re recommend, and sometime here in this next year, I'll do a Foundations for Leadership class. In that class, we go into, I mean, you're talking about getting into the weeds. We will look at every scripture. We will look at every objection. We will, look, we will, we will dissect this to the nth degree. And so if you want to know more about this and you have questions, come to that class. Or if you have questions, give me a shout, and we'll have lunch together. So let me close with just one quick uh, application. The atonement, next slide, is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for his people. It's the ultimate demonstration of God's love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, This is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Some of us here this morning, by way of application, we need to participate in the blessings of the atonement by trusting in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. You hear this appeal week after week, and yet you have yet to acknowledge your need to commit your life to Christ and to trust in Him, to, to bring into your life the objective reality that has happened at the cross. And so I want to encourage you again, even this week, come see me. Come over to our care room to my left after the service where we have Stephen ministers and, and elders and pastors who will be happy to take the scriptures and help you enter into this new relationship with Christ. Some of us, we, we have that, but we need, to, we need to relax. We need to rest in the perfection of Jesus' atoning work. We struggle with sin and we fight against sin and it's easy for us to begin to think, I'm a disappointment to God. That maybe I'm experiencing the, the wrath of God, the condemnation of God, that God is not happy with me, he's displeased with me. The atonement tells us to banish such thoughts. That God is absolutely pleased with us because we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're covered in his righteousness. His, our sins are taken as far as the east is from the west. He does not see someone who deserves his wrath any longer because that wrath has been taken by Jesus. Instead, he sees a loving son and daughter who's made of dust and he understands our frame. And we don't have to live in fear of God, afraid of God, when we fail, 
We don't have to run from coming to the Scriptures the next morning and opening them and spending quiet time with God and worshiping Him, thinking that we don't deserve to do so because of our failure from the day before or the night before. That's exactly why we run to that time of worship, because our Father's there with open arms waiting for us, and He does this because Christ is covered over that failure. Your heavenly Father does not see you as a failure. He sees you as a loved son and daughter. One final application here. This may not be for a lot of you, but this is certainly for some of you this morning. Some of us need to take comfort in the fact that Jesus' perfect work of atonement assures us that our little ones and our infirmed family members and friends who may never intellectually understand the gospel have a future hope of glory. We can, we can look to the day when those children who we lost in the womb or we lost perhaps in a young age or those family and friends who, who never have the capacity to even understand that they are sinners in need of a Savior, we take comfort in the fact that God loves the children and the families of his people. And that when Christ atoned for sins, every one of those little children and those people who don't have that capacity, if Christ atoned for their sins, they have a place in God's heaven just as much as we do. Because all of us will be there not because of our understanding, because of our goodness, or because of our perfection. All of us will ultimately be there because Jesus Christ shed his blood for our sins and paid that penalty. And God will not pour out his wrath upon those who could never have a way of professing faith in Jesus. Lord Jesus, this reminds us that when it comes to salvation from beginning to end, it is all you. You receive all the glory. We get none of the credit. You receive all the glory. We, we look at it even in that last idea that even though every one of us are born sinners, from conception we're in sin, yet your redeeming love, your sovereign grace is so powerful that on the cross, Jesus could pay for sins of those little ones who we never even got to enjoy here on earth, so that one day we will enjoy their presence before your throne. Only you, Lord Jesus, could have a vision that is that magnanimous, that extensive, that glorious. We thank you, and for the one who is yet to profess faith in you, we pray for them this morning that they would trust you and enter into the peace that you've already purchased through your blood. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.